Hello and welcome back to another episode of TOTS. I'm your host, Ben Gardner. Today on the show, we have Andreas Widmer. He is an entrepreneur and a professor at the Catholic University of America. Welcome, Andreas. Thank you, Ben. Glad to be here. Good. How are you doing today? Very good. It's a little on the hot side for me being from Switzerland, but I can manage. There you go. Yeah, it's been this this Maryland, D.C. area has been like just so hot recently. Yeah, hundred degrees. It's yeah. I I tried to go outside yesterday, and I was like, yeah, I'm gonna like get some stuff done in the yard, and then like five minutes later, I was like, yeah, it's time to go back inside, and get Not a drink, and relax for a little bit. Yeah. So thank you, uh, first of all, for coming on the show, and um, you know, I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing about your career because you've done some very cool things with your life. Um, so to start it out, for people who don't know you, um, how would you describe yourself? Well, um, as you said, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm a professor. So I'm sort of t- a little bit uh, pulling back. You know, I'm I'm not an academic. I'm a I'm a street fighter, if you wish. I learned business uh, by doing it. I do have a, an undergraduate degree in business and um, just sort of fell into entrepreneurship. By I came to America when I was 23, and I met some some guys who you know you know who had this idea who said well they needed somebody who speaks foreign languages and i was a foreign kid so i so they there you go i could help they had this vision they said that they translated at the time they said they translated tcp ip for the pc which doesn't mean anything to me and i didn't before before i was 23 i never really used the computer to any extent Mm. and they just said that they they created a network or, or they, they allowed PCs to access a huge network, which was called the internet. And I didn't hear, I didn't know anything about any of these things. Um, but I was looking for something to do and these kids were very cool and, and I liked them. And uh, so I joined and that company was called FTP Software. And so I became, you know, I didn't start a company. I, I joined them. There were maybe 50 people at the time, but I helped bring the product abroad. Yeah. And so uh, entrepreneurship is not always starting a company. Sometimes it's also starting something within it or so. And that sort of created my entrepreneurial career. Beyond that, I'm, um, I'm a husband and a father. I have my wife, Michelle. We're married for about 30 years. Actually, this year is the 30th year. And I have a son, Eli, uh, who's 16 years old. And um, what else is there to say? I love fly fishing and reading <laughs> music. Yeah. There you go. Those are some good hobbies, good things to have. You know, and, and we know each other through uh, through our classes at CUA. You, you were... Uh, you're one of the showpieces of uh, the Sioka Center as one of the uh, entrepreneurship miners who took the risk on us while we were still in our infancy, still mm-hmm. are to some extent, even with my classes. I mean, I'm, you know yeah. me better than anybody's listening. Um, I, we're trying stuff and we're entrepreneurial even in how we approach education. Yeah. Um, and I find that that's, you know, teaching and the university is the fountain of youth. I think because mm-hmm. um, being able to deal with and relate always to the youngest generation of people coming into the business world, I think keeps you young because you can't uh, you can't settle 
if you if you wanted to be successful, you can't settle for anything. And you right. Sort of, you got to keep trying different things. Yeah. You have to adapt to uh, to the language and the interests of the newest generation. And that doesn't mean you can't. I have my thoughts and my vision of things, but the trick is to keep on saying it in a way that people from the next generation can understand it. Sure. And I love this. I tell you, teaching has been one of the coolest jobs I've ever had. I just absolutely love doing it. Why is that? Like, what do you get well, out of uh, teaching? One thing is I have ADD on steroids. Like, I'm, I'm <laughs> one of these kids who actually sucked at school. I was, mm-hmm. I was no good at school because I just have, a, I, I have trouble doing long-term focus. And right. being in a classroom, and you know, my, so on the one hand, I have a classroom with only a few students, like four or five students. On the other right. hand, I have an auditorium with 100 people in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and both of these feeds, to, feeds into my ADD. If you have 100 people there, I can do things and I, you sort of have to act, uh, be on your feet. And it's almost like a production, which feeds my ADD. That, that it just, that's, an, that's a situation that really makes me happy. On the other hand, if it's only a few people, then you can get involved where as long as you're open to everybody around you, you can constantly focus on the next, the next, the next thing, which is also something that that um, makes my ADD into into an advantage. Um, and so I think that's part of my uh, uh, of why I like it because it fits it, it fits my nature. And right. at the same time, it um, seeing people like you, like you're starting to do this, and I have all these students who start cool things, and that I'm sort of seeing <laughs> how they're. It's like seeing people blossom in front of you. Right. I mean, front row in people's lives. It's great. I love it. Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. And, and you mentioned kind of like the ADHD on steroids. Uh, You know, we, we know a couple people mutually who, who also have that. And I say, I like to say that they have ADHD plus and it's, uh, but you also mentioned like it's an advantage and, you know, having ADHD or ADD myself, it's like, I feel people that don't have it like struggle to kind of understand that. So I wanted to touch on that. And I, at least from my perspective, it's um, I think will I am said it best. Like he was giving an interview and he had said that, you know, it's an advantage. It's definitely an advantage. And this was like 10 years ago. And they're like, well, why is it an advantage? And he's like, cause I'm doing this interview with you now and I'm answering questions. And I'm also thinking about what kind of sandwich I'm going to make for lunch tomorrow. And it's like, it, it makes you competitively, like you, you always have that edge. You're always thinking about a bunch of things, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs have that in common. It. So look, um, I have a deep belief that we are not an accident, and we are here for a purpose, and we are all meant, and and in that sense, loved into existence. That means that any attribute you have can be a positive or a negative. Yeah. And they, I'm of the conviction that even an illness could be something that is meant to bring you to excellence. It's a hard thing and and it can bring you to excellence. I don't want to downplay the learning disabilities. And and believe me, Ben, I've had serious learning disabilities with dyslexia and I have issues with numbers and just this life hasn't been easy. As such, I when you know I joke always in the classes that I sucked at class at, at school. I'm not like that's true. Yeah. I, to this day, I have issues uh, 
with numbers and with uh, with remembering things, remembering names of people and things like that, which is just people will think that you're being, you know, it's it's like the classic thing in my school was that the the teachers would write back or, or talk to my parents and say he never pays attention, he has no respect for anybody because he doesn't remember anything, and he's not trying hard enough, right? You can try as hard as you want, you're not trying hard enough because it doesn't work, right? Now. The question is not whether you have it or not. The question is what you do with it. Now, you can go and lie in a corner and say, poor me, and lick your wounds and, and hate the world for the fact that they don't understand you. But no, no cross in a sense that you have is meant to do that. Right. What it's meant to do is to give you an opportunity to actually grow through it rather than break underneath it. Yeah. Now, you know, at my time, there wasn't. This wasn't a time they 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 diagnosed it. Like I had to diagnose this later on as an adult. You know, my, yeah. in my thirties, forties, right? Mm-hmm. But and and so much, much not easier, much much different for my son who has this and can actually deal with this and actually have some and, and actually use chemistry to take something that he can focus at the time, which makes him progress much faster than I would have. Right. It took me, you know. I think I read two books by the time I was 20 years old. And, and it's just, wow. if reading becomes so difficult that you can't do it properly, it slows down your, uh, your learning, seriously. For sure. And only with 20 did I start to cope with it. And I, and I don't know whether it was before that I developed the mechanisms and everything, but I just want to say, I wanna, don't want to underestimate it. At the same time, and this is sort of looking at your life and seeing what the positives are. I was so, um, failure was no threat to me. Mm-hmm. Like I failed all the time. And so it's not, and, and I was used to standing back up because quitting school wasn't an option. Quitting anything I did wasn't an option. So I had to stick with things and yet I failed all the time. Right. This is is the perfect entrepreneur. I think this is why a guy like Richard Branson is a successful entrepreneur because he stuck at everything he did early in life. (laughs) And so failure isn't going to deter this guy. Like you can, I I always say the way I win is not by being the best. The way I win is by never quitting. You have to kill me to make me quit. So I take failure no problem. I just will give, get back up and see what went wrong and then try to do better and get and fog and get up again. I think that's one of the uh, aspects that if you deal with entrepreneurs, they're not all like it, but many have this history, just similar to what, what I have, of right. having uh, gone through failure and not giving up and learning to cope and turn failure into success. Fail into success, I call it. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I feel like it's also when you're experiencing that failure, it's much easier to experience that when you're a child and to, to really learn and have that become part of who you are is like, it's okay to fail. And I know I'm going to fail. So if I go into something, there's, you know, two or three roads, I'm a success, I'm a failure or somewhere in the middle, that middle is definitely the worst. But like, we talk about this on the podcast all the time, how learning from failure is one of the most important things you can do. And you're always going to learn more from failure than success. You know, if if I succeed in something, attention, yeah, right, exactly. Because if I succeed in something, I don't necessarily know what led me to succeed. But if I fail at something, I'm going to take the time typically 
to go through it and be like, well, why didn't that work? And when you do that, you're learning so much more about yourself and what you were trying to accomplish that you can't help but be successful the second time. See, the, the third time. That only works if you know that your self-worth and your identity doesn't come from that particular success, that you actually have a personality and a persona that is independent of this. If right. you fall with it, you're going, to be, you're going to fall so low that you won't have the wherewithal to stand back up. But you have sure. to have a certain dif- distance to, uh, to, to, to material or a success or a success in a company um, that my company is not me. And, and my work is not me. I take my self-esteem and my self-regard from somewhere else. What I do at work is a process, and it's a bit like, you see, so now you have a European using, you probably remember how I do bad sports analogies because I don't understand half the sports I'm talking yes. about. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the pitcher or the bat, you know, hitting a baseball bat uh, with the bat hitting the ball the thing is that what you should focus on is to is the muscle memory of hitting the actual ball, whether this goes across the fence or not, is in a way not up to you. All you can right. do is hit it really hard and, and making sure that you focus on your muscle memory. The home run itself, if you live by the self-esteem and that gives you the meaning of being a baseball player, you, you're never going to be a baseball player because you right. don't directly control it, right? Yeah. And so it's better to focus on uh, on the small improvements. And life is a bit like this, that if you only look at, oh, I need to be a big success in, in business and entrepreneurship, if you go like that, that's not going to work. And that's, then you're gonna, it's going to crush you because you right. will. Yeah, I totally, I totally believe in that. So I wanted to talk also about some things that you've done over the course of your career and, and kind of how things got started. So Many people listening might not know that you were actually a Swiss guard for a time. Tell me how you got into that and what your experience was like through that. Yeah. So I, as I said, I wasn't good at anything as a, as a kid, except physical stuff. So I'm six foot nine. I wasn't always, but I grew, you know, fast enough. And, and I'm the youngest of six kids, so I know how to fight. There so, you go. <laughs> I, I and the one thing I was good at is is uh, fighting and and you know physical activity, sports mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, in Switzerland, I I did uh, the military training, and it's a militia, and everybody has to go. And that's the first time I started to really be successful at something. And in military in Switzerland, it's it's interesting because you have a militia. It starts at twelve years old, and the school is all public school. So you actually your your physical ed in public school in Switzerland is actually partially military guided and wow. and all your tests are going to be uh, and are, are designed by the military and so so that they see you early on in how you're developing right and i was good at this and so they and and i did you can volunteer uh, to start military courses early on like you mm-hmm. have to go into the military at 19 but you but i started military courses at like 15 14 15 and wow. Actually, because I was seeking something I, I was going to succeed at and be good at. And, um, and so I, I actually uh, did that. And interesting uh, side note, I, I learned uh, in my pre-military training, one of the things I learned to do is to Morse code. And you know those mm-hmm. little machines where you can tap, tap, tap? Yeah. I, I was able to, uh, there with about 16, 17 years old, 
I could Morse code over a hundred signs a minute. Wow. And that's pretty fast. That is pretty fast. You know, I can do it with that little thing, <laughs> you know, with that little machine that you do the thing. Yeah. Anyway, so I got into the, uh, so then that, because I did the pre-military training, which is common in Switzerland, somewhat common in Switzerland, then you don't get like into the infantry when you actually go. But then you, because you're right. specialized, it will take you into a unit that is an infantry, which is, you don't want to do it. So right. I, I went in and I became, a, went into transmission communication, but still, you know, the basic training and all that. And um, and I loved it because I, I excelled at it and they loved me and that was a very good feedback for me. And then when I learned that I could go and do this somewhere professionally and become a professional soldier in, um, and become physically a bodyguard, I thought that was just the coolest thing. Yeah. Um, and I did that as most of the uh, guys do today in the beginning without any kind of religious or a strong religious conviction. Uh, because you do end up protecting the Pope. Um, mm. But uh, mostly I did it because I thought it was cool. Yeah. And, and it is. <laughs> but, uh, but then, you know, I got in there and they train you, which is really cool. Um, and then I met John Paul. And that, of course, as you know, changed my life because that was the first person that I met. Um, you know, maybe I met others who were like that, but I didn't, it didn't impress on me that way. The first person I met who showed me a way to relate to God and have faith that was real and not divided and not um, hypocritical and just to change, he changed my life. I was never the same. Yeah. No. That's awesome. So how did you train and, and prepare to do something as large as protecting the Pope? Like what, yeah, what goes I, I, into all of that? Yeah, it's not very large because protecting the Pope is a man-to-man -man activity, right? <laughs> All you have to do, and I was a foot soldier, so I didn't have to do the, the big planning around. All I have to do is, is do what's around me. Most of this, the way you do in, in protection, in, in personal protection, is you have to think of what actually the threat is. And the usual threat to somebody like the Pope, and, and to most leaders uh, on an immediate level, is somebody crazy attacking and trying to strangle the person or, or, or you know, do something or have a knife or whatever. Right. Um, and then, and that means physical combat. And you, you know, this is the Pope you're protecting, so you're not going to start to shoot at somebody. <laughs> somebody gets right. too close. <clears throat> and, and also, even, uh, uh, you, you may not remember, but even like world leaders, if something happens on this close, this close to them, that nobody's going to start shooting because you you can't you shoot can. one guy. There's all these people around. Right. There was a guy years ago who threw a shoe at President Bush at a press conference. Yep. Remember that? They I didn't shoot that guy. They sat on him. <laughs> so, right. And this is that's classic defense, right? Classic sure. uh, bodyguard protection. Uh, that we don't like shoot at people who do something, but you actually use your body, and so a lot of it is close hand. Uh, it's a form of uh, you know, martial arts that you get trained to put somebody out of commission and you do it in a way that uh, doesn't leave any lasting damage, that you just do short-term restraint of somebody who doesn't hurt them in the long term. It just makes it very uncomfortable in the minute, you know, in the mo moment. Sure. And that's something, the only thing you learn that is by practice. 
Yeah. So both in the Swiss military first and then going into the guards, uh, practice, practice. It becomes monotone. Like you keep doing this, keep doing this. It's the only way you learn it. And then, um, yeah, and then you do the other stuff. But that's that's most of it. And then just strategically, you have to understand how protection works. There's a whole system to it. And very efficient and much less glamorous than it looks from the outside. Sure. <laughs> so how long were you in uh, or were you a Swiss guard? And then what did you do after that? So I, I, they only train you if you stay for at least two years. Otherwise, it's not. Yeah, there's so much training that's like we train you and then you leave. We're not right. That. So, and I did stay for two years because I have to say a, a job like this because you have to be ready twenty four seven. You you're up every third at least every third night. You're up all night. You're sure. always there's no the humans can't have a three day circle cycle and be up every third night. Uh, I've ended up just being tired all the time, and I, I, I can't do that for the long term. I, I admire right. some of my buddies who have been doing this for twenty years. This, this is not right. <laughs> not for me. Um, I left. Uh, I met my wife there, and um, I don't know whether I've ever told you this, but I, I actually didn't speak a word of English until I met her. Really, uh, I did not know the, that. The first, I, I came to America in uh, in nineteen eighty nine at twenty three years old. And I didn't speak English. So up to 23, I didn't, English was not a language I knew. Wow. And so, but I met her and, and I totally fell in love with her. She was the classic, you know, she was the American girl in Rome studying abroad. And I met her there and, and uh, <coughs> ended up deciding that I was going to leave the guards. I introduced her to the Pope. He thought she really? was. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so wait, let me get this straight. So the Pope... <laughs> signed off on you two seeing each other Is yeah. that, am i getting that right okay you got that right he liked you know and he um he knew about my whole way of trying to figure out what to do with my life and all this he was a you know many people experience their elders or teachers or the older people as critics and he was a coach and I tell you, Ben, a lot of what I do today that you've seen me do in the classroom and at work at the university, I do because of him. Because that's, I, I'm trying to do what he did. And he gave me, he was the first person who, who believed in me. It's difficult when you're 18 years old, everybody thinks you're just a punk, right? right. That guy never thought I was a punk, even though I probably was, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the somebody needs to start to believe in you because yeah. you uh, because you're a human being and you and the, the, the truth is there's so much talent in humans that if you just start to uh, help them and actually believe in them and lead them on that path to excellence which each person of us has a different one somebody has to do this and, yeah. and he did this for me and today that's all I do all day long it's like that's the meaning of my life today is to teach and to work with individuals to help them find their excellence. The, the human excellence is not monotone and it's not everybody in the same. This is sort of one of the issues with schooling today, that they try to create these robots that all do the same. That's not human. We're right. all different and we all have our excellence. And he sort of did that and showed me that. And um, of course, I didn't want to disappoint him then. 
And so just to leave, and he uh, he did sort of, when I said I was going to leave, he's like, what, am I not treating you well? What is <laughs> <laughs> he, he sort of made fun of it at the time. And then he said, well, how old? Uh, uh, oh, I said, well, you know, I, I'm not getting any younger. And he thought that was funny. He's like, not getting any younger. <laughs> how, how old are you? I said, I'm 22 years old. And he's like, well, but then eventually, of course, he knew. And he said, look, I, I know you have to go and you have to have your life. Now, just, and that's sort of the deal. He said, you know, go and bring what you learned here into the world, including yeah. your, like, don't, don't, if you go into business now, then don't just leave, leave your, your morals, your values and your faith. Don't just leave those behind, like bring them with you. And um, yeah, and then I would go back once in a while to tell him about it. I went back to Michelle for Michelle's thirtieth uh, birthday. On her thirtieth birthday, we had an audience with him. And, nice. Uh, yeah, he see, you know, and this is also this, of course, always looks so big from the outside, but in the inside, it's just right. a man, and just like just anybody else, people yeah. he knows. And when you go back, and you were a kid when he knew you, and then he's all excited to see you and say, "So, what are you doing?" <laughs> you know, and then. Like. Yeah, so it's it's been a huge uh, experience and a humbling experience in a sense, but at the same time, it's sort of you know the um, to look at it sort of with I, I never saw him as the Pope because right. that's a formal thing, but of course to me this was very informal. Um, he was a mentor, and he was just the guy I worked for, and and. And because of that relationship, he was, and, and because, of course, if you work with somebody every day, all of the pomp and all of the sort of artificial stuff falls away anyway. If, if you're with just 24 real person, yeah. It's just us, yeah. Yeah. And, and that allowed for a pretty nice, um, you know, still relative formal because I'm supposed to be in the background. Like I would have never initiated a conversation because that's against, you can't, you know, imagine if the secret service starts to talk to the president. Right. That's just, that's just <laughs> not, okay. but right. when he talks, I get to talk back. And once, once in a while he comes to the barracks or even Francis now, they go and, and we have barracks. There's about 130 uh, of these Swiss guards and the Pope will show up and have a dinner with them or or have a barbecue or baptize their kids. You know, yeah. they, they see him socially too, but just once in a while. Sure. But yeah, so then I left and I came to America, uh, as I said, without uh, knowing the language really. And um, this school in Massachusetts gave me a break and said, look, we'll let you in. Just try it out for a semester. If you can't fly, then we're going to have to send you back. Right. And so literally I came in without taking any of the tests or anything whatsoever. And I just went to school and they gave me a scholarship and it was called Merrimack College in North Andover, Massachusetts. It's a sister school to, uh, um, to Villanova. Really? Okay. And yeah. And they let me in and I, I, I learned English in that half year. Wow. Then, That's a small time frame to learn English too. Yeah. Well, but, but once you're in and all they speak is English, nobody spoke my language. So everybody right. spoke English and you do. I think six months is a good time. And um, and that's when I met these kids, these guys from FTP. Uh, that there was another guy who graduated from there who had these friends at MIT 
who, who were these techies and they ported TCP IP to the PC. And so this guy, Joe was his name. So Joe uh, asked around uh, Merrimack if there's anybody who knows more than one language. And I, of course, knew quite a few. And so he's like, yeah, you got to come in here because we had all these foreigners calling and we can't handle this. And so, and he says, and we can't pay you. So <laughs> I'm like, that's okay. I'm not allowed to work anyway. <laughs> he's I'm like, yeah, I need you to come in and, and solve our biggest issue, but uh, we're not going to pay you anything. So they ended up sort of saying, well, look, if you go to Europe, you can travel whenever you're off school and we'll pay for that. And I'm like, you, you pay for me yeah. to go to Switzerland every, every break? I'll, I'll do it. But, yeah. you know, I'll totally do it. And then eventually they gave me shares and, and, and then eventually they did pay. And, and before I knew it, I, I was the head of the international side of things and I built up. And, and right when I graduated, uh, we went public and I moved to Munich. I moved over to Europe and we opened up the, we created an entire subsidiary that I would run for all of the foreign stuff. Wow. And that was an incredible, incredible thing. And so it was basically the, the internet protocol for the PC. So the internet yeah. was only on Unix servers. And then we, we wrote this so that the PC could understand the language and suddenly the PCs could go online. I think there were at least two or three companies who did that somewhat at the same time. But mm -hmm. we did it with the, uh, you know, our students, they, these guys who did it, they were, they were students of Vinton Cerf, who's actually the father of the internet. And so we were very much at the source and, and therefore our product was pretty much the cat's meow. And yeah. man, that was an experience. I mean, we doubled, I bet. We doubled sales every month. I mean, it was incredible. Oh, I bet. Just and, like crazy growth. And then, so I was like 24, 25, 26 years old. And I had, you know, a hundred million dollar business underneath. And, and it was just, it was unreal um, to, to and, and remember that you have to think of my psychology and all of this and my self-perception to go from what I would consider to be having failed at everything I did in life to suddenly get into an elite military unit and then come over here and study because suddenly things started to, I, I learned to cope with it and then being yeah. a part of this fast growing thing. And this is, remember this was in 1990, like this is before anybody knew about the internet. Like we, this was, you know, the genesis in, of, yeah. of, of the internet as we know it. Um, it changed, you know, it changed things. And, um, and then of course you, you make, I made work the center of my life, you know, as soon as I, you know, when you run a company like this, like over in Europe and I, I went things, I went to the other extreme, you know, where everything I did, I worked every day of the year, every day. And, um, and then eventually I, it's a long story, but eventually, we so once we went public, and then these Wall Street guys show up, and then and then they make everything about numbers. We call FTP fund that pays because we it's yeah. called file transfer protocol, but we called it fund that pays because we were all with friends. We were just hanging out and doing this. Yeah. We thought it was cool, you know, and and um. And, but then Wall Street, once you go public, you have to report on these things. And there, there, this growth has to be linear in a certain way, which growth is never linear. Um, right. 
it's like this outside force of finance that focus, that pushes in. And so they sort of started to demand that we would say things and, and, and do things that I knew were not right. And they just weren't right with me. And I found myself sort of having to defend things that the company did to the public, to press and things like that. That just made me awkward to the point that I couldn't even say it. And, yeah. and, I, and at some point I told Michelle, like, I got to get out of here. I can't deal with this. All right. And we're going to take a quick moment to hear a word from our sponsor, Studio 15. Studio 15 has sponsored me several times before. So if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you have definitely heard me talk about them. They have the most beautiful map prints, and I want you guys to check these out. You can find them for pretty much anywhere in the United States, but also places across the world, and specifically really, really beautiful places. Me personally, I miss DC. It's been COVID times. I can't visit all the time like I would like to, so I bought myself a DC one. They're absolutely stunning. They will brighten up any room that you put them in. Definitely go check them out. For a limited time, you can actually get 20% off you heard that right, 20% off with code LABORDAY2020, that's all caps. Go to juanitas.etsy.com, check out their map prints. What was your feelings around leaving and, and how did you eventually get out of that? I, I've come to realize that there's no companies, there's only people. Don't be ever loyal to a company per se, be loyal to people. Um, companies come and go, they shape in this form and that form and they come you know, in different uh, shapes, but people stay. So, so what I learned, and I didn't always do it right, but what I learned is what you do, you do right by people. So that somebody who you're working with, you have a clear understanding of what, you know, what am I going to do and what are you going to do? And then to deliver on that. So I, for example, wouldn't just quit, you know, you're, a, you're an employee at will, but even though you're running this huge, part of the company and, and you wouldn't just say, well, I'm going to give you two week notice. I'm out of here because I disagree with something you do. Um, right. You get, you know, I worked on it and I said, look, I'd like to get out. Um, and just, you know, you have to stand your ground, but to work on a transition plan that you don't just let, let all these people in the, in a lurch. Um, because otherwise you, you, you can hurt careers and, and eventually yourself. See in these yeah. industries, it's, they're not making new people. This is like the same people keep going around. I know, I knew everybody in high tech because sure. this is, you know, in the internet, everybody was, uh, was in the same boat. I mean, I knew, you know, Andreessen built his, uh, Mark Andreessen built Netscape on our development kit. I, I would have, uh, I spoke at internet, uh, congresses right after Jim Clark, the guy who, who helped him build, build Netscape. Uh, we worked, I worked with Eric Venemu, the, the, the guy of three, com you know, Eric Schmidt uh, was at Novell at the time, the guy who, who ran Google. These are all, this all comes from one place in the early 90s or late 80s. And these were the same people and they go all the way in the same people. Now, if you mess with one of them, it's only people. Pay attention. Done. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you're going to have a reputation. This isn't about companies. This is about people. Do right by people. And I tried that, and and that pays off. Um, I think the military helped me with this, because you don't mess with people in the military, <laughs> right? <laughs> you wanna, well. Yeah, you don't want to piss off somebody above you. And and you have to be able to rely on others. Like there were yeah. you say I do this, you do it. Um, and so I, I left with a bitter taste because 
uh, I started to see the corrupting influence of, of a purely financial mind on business and how it can actually ruin entrepreneurship. And, and for that matter, the growth of a company that they think yeah. it helps, but it actually doesn't. It helps short-term profit, but long-term, it's a total mess. Um, sure. I, I couldn't have verbalized it at the time, but I, I started to realize that you know, in, in, if you run a company just based on finance, financial and legal advice, you're going to run it into the ground. And so I left and I found a, a couple, actually, a husband and wife team that invented speech recognition. And we also wanted to move back to Boston because, you know, we, we loved it there. And at the time we lived in Munich. So then we moved back to Boston to join this, this other startup called Dragon Systems. And this husband and wife team, they, they invented speech recognition. Not just what, two of them. There were some other people with it. What year was this? Uh, 95, I don't know. 90, yeah, give or take a year. Sure. And they just innovated and figured out how to do what's called continuous speech so that you could, oh, before you had to say discrete, every word separate, and it's tedious. Now you could do continuous speech and it would write it down, just like Siri. Actually, it is Siri. And... And they needed somebody to bring in what's called a discontinuous technology, just like the internet, where I'm asking you to do something in a different way, which is difficult to bring in technology that makes you do th behave in a different way. Right. And, and so I found that we found each other and they said, why don't you do here for, again, make an international group and just make everything for that. But the, in, the interesting part of that to me was, that that also included development because of course if you have an english product and now you need a chinese product you can't just translate the manual i get actually right. asked to you know uh, that language and so my my exposure was and my responsibility was increased that i also had responsibility for the development of this kind of stuff and it was a rocket ship i mean it was you know amazing um we went public with this, uh, we, we brought the product out a year after I joined. I had a year sort of to, you know, runway. A year from then we brought it up. Uh, we, I want to say 96, 97, we, we brought out uh, Dragon Naturally Speaking. Of course, we, we, we have no money. Like what is totally right. <laughs> We have this amazing thing that we've created, but we have no way to market it. We have no money for new offices, nothing. <clears throat> And we couldn't do advertising or anything. Our break were two things. One was that Arthur C. Clarke, who's the writer of um, A Space Odyssey, he was a big fan of what we did because Hal, you know, the big computer in there. That they yeah. He knew, so this Arthur C. Clarke, he lived in Sri Lanka, I think, and he was this big fan. And he would help us. We could use his text for free in the product. And he would once in a while say something good about us. But, you know, okay, so a couple of geeks knew about us. <laughs> so, right. I mean, that's... <laughs> what Clark would, would reach, um, you know, with all respect to him. But then what happened is one, and this is totally without anything that we ever had anything to do. This famous actor, um, Richard Dreyfus. So that's the father of that, of Ellen. Uh, is that her, her name? Who was, who was like on, uh, on, on, uh, friend and on. Seinfeld. Was it, it was Julia. Julia Dreyfus, yeah. Julia Dreyfus, yeah. So Julia, that's her dad. 
And he's like right. famous for, uh, he was in, in Jaws, he was in Mr. Holland's Opus and everything. And he was on, on, uh, on, the, on the Late Show with like David Letterman. And he walks in there and he's, so Letterman's like, so what have you been up to? And he says, well, I have finally learned how to use a computer. And this guy brings his laptop and was like, you know, 30 pound laptop. Big clunky thing, <laughs> right? And puts on this thing and says, you should see the product I just got. And the guy got a hold of our product and is on national TV using, demoing our software. Wow. We have no idea. We, the next morning, I mean, some of the, some <laughs> of us, I wasn't, but some others were like on and they saw this and they said, this is our product. And he told us, he told everybody about our company. He never called us or anything. This was completely unsolicited. Wow. And, and we're like, wow, you couldn't pay for this. Next day, of course, our sales go through. <laughs> and then we did contact him and, and we're like, listen, uh, is there anything we can do? And, and but this is like, you know, very, infor- we're an informal bunch, right? Nobody yeah. wears a suit, we're like tech, you know, a tech startup. And he's like, oh, I'm a big fan of you guys. As a matter of fact, if you launch, and we said, we're, we're going to have a big launch, you know, in, in April. If you launch a product, I'll be your spokesperson for free. I don't want anything, just I'm, wow. because I don't do that kind of thing. And we're like, well, wow. if you really think so. And he says, yeah, I just, it's on my terms. I, t- I tell you when I'll be there and when not, and I do it the way I want it. And we're like, hey, whatever you say, whatever you I think say. You're like, so, please, no one screw this up. <laughs> so we actually had this, this launch on April 2nd of, mm, I don't know what it was, 97, 98, I don't know. The, you can look back up because that day was a northeastern snowstorm. The biggest oh, snowstorm yeah. like in 10 years. And we were all supposed to go down to New York and nothing, you couldn't. So I don't right. know how I did it, but I ended up being there. And some journalists, so we had this big launch and Richard Dreyfus was going to be there and he's our spokesperson and he kicks the whole thing up and shows the product. And, and But we did get a good press, um, except, but you know, not half the people showed up who were supposed to because of the snowstorm. Right. But that was that made us, you know. After the races, we went, and this was uh, became very successful. There were other products who tried to do it, but we had like eighty percent market share. Like we were the oh, game, yeah. and and ours was the technology that really worked. And um, and then we ended up trying to go public, but it didn't quite work out because a long story. Finance always finance. always screwing things yeah. up, right? And then. Um, and then we ended up deciding to sell the company. And at the time I was very close with, so I, my big thing was Asia then, because in Asia, speech recognition is huge, you know, because of the sure. kanji set and everything is just super ideal for that market. And I did a lot of business in, in, in China and then eventually in Japan. And I became very close to Sony Corporation. And it just happened to be that the guy who I knew best at Sony, who was like my buddy, became the president of all of Sony, like out of the blue. Wow. And he was, he didn't even run for it. And suddenly the guy calls me and says, guess I was promoted. And so he <laughs> big cheese at Sony. And, um, and so I said, look, we're selling the company and because we're not going public, we want to sell it. And so he, um, he says, we'll buy it. And so I invited him and, 
And it ended up being that Sony is this Japanese company. They're not going to give you shares. Like Sony shares are not for trade. Like you, you don't, right. you're not going to get gonna a share. They were paying cash, right? But then if you compete with cash against somebody's funny money on the, in, on the stock market, it's very difficult. And so they, mm. so they would have given hard cash. And they were outbid by somebody who was like a, a fly higher on, sh- in, on the stock market, who funny sure. enough was our competitor. Really? And, uh, but they had, so they had less than 20% market share for sure. Yet they were larger than us. And Here. they, because it's funny, it's stock market stuff, you know, in, in right. Um, and they were, that damn finance, like <laughs> they were a Belgian company. Coming in. So they were a Belgian company and, and they were high flying and they were able to acquire us with a stock swap uh, for $600 million. And of course, that was much more than others would give and, and pay and so on and so forth. And so we did this. And I have to say, I voted for it too, even though I didn't like them. And I'm, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. We should. Sure. It turns out the, close, the deal closes. It turns out later that this was a complete and utter fraud. Like they made really? up. Yeah, it's just a financial, you know, making up numbers, making this look good with numbers. and And... Um, and the whole thing went went bankrupt, and so wow. this went from six hundred million to zero. Like that's crazy. Yeah, and I sold a little bit because I don't want to lie and say that I lost everything, but I I lost a chunk. Like yeah. I lost a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> and um, and then what do you do if you lose all your money, basically? Um. And all of us lost all the money. And it's yeah. that's really difficult. Um, for me, it was sort of a, uh, I think, a graceful moment, a, a grace-filled moment, because it made me remember what business and life was all about. Like, it made me focus. So it shook me out of this success delirium, if you wish, huh? to, to remember back of that the economy exists for man, not man for the economy. Right. And that business is about people. Exactly. And, uh, and that it's it just and not numbers, but people. It put the pe- person in the center. And in a way, yeah, you know, and money, money is a funny thing. It's like, uh, it's not as, money isn't as cool as people say it is. Um, yes, it hurts to lose it. But after a certain amount of money that you have, that you, and, and it's not a lot. Like I just, I live comfortably. Um, but I, I'm not wealthy per se, but I'm, you know, I live okay. Beyond that money doesn't add to your happiness or to the meaning of life. And I know I have these discussions a lot in my classes with the students and they say, well, easy for you to say, no, actually not easy for me to say. (laughs) You (laughs) went through it. Yeah. And, and I do mean it that money is, it's more important to have meaningful work, a good social environment, good relationships, good friendships, and having a higher meaning in life, including what I would consider to be faith. That's more important than having a billion dollars. And yeah. if people don't believe me, go try it. 
and then see see what happens. See, see what you, how you feel. <laughs> yeah, see, see how you feel. And then listen, if if that makes you miserable, you just send some my way, and we'll call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen so many people and so many of my friends who, in the industry, in all kinds of industry, not just in our company. I saw it through Netscape and people like that. People made a lot of money and in, in the internet in general, and who were miserable. Many people ended up. I have lots of friends who died of through drugs, alcohol, suicide, broken marriages. Look, I, I've I've gone through the '90s in the high tech bubble. Like that, that's my yeah. life. That was my life. I've seen it. Microsoft. I've seen lots of people. And uh, if if you don't have a proper meaning and um, and and uh, order in a sense in life, it becomes very. Uh, uh, yeah, dangerous in terms of your your health, your well being. Um, yeah. And so I so eventually I turned around and I started to uh, talk about this and teach it. My first uh, impression, though, my first approach after this downfall was to is to ask: Is this market that we're in? So I come, you know, I come to America. I live the American dream for a European. This is so cliche, right? I come and I'm part of this company <laughs> that grows and everything. Yep. And yet there's also this criticism of the free market, of the globalization and everything. So is it that evil? Because, right, I mean, even now they're saying it. And, and back then there was all this movement of saying, this is a, uh, an evil, uh, you know, the, the, global, the free market is evil and capitalism is evil. And, all that. and so here I am, I'm living this and, and, and I actually get punched in the face by it. And so I had to ask myself, is that true? And I did a lot of soul searching. I ended up, actually, my master's degree is in, is in theology, not in business. It's a funny thing because I wanted, <laughs> to go ask, I wanted to go ask that science, if you wish, to say, is it true or not? For the right. business side, I, I, I know enough. And I, I did end up working with some very good uh, business strategy folks um, at a, at a uh, at a consulting firm where I really learned to, uh, what there's to know about business strategy. And I came to understand that it's actually not the system that is evil. If some, it's, it's what you do with it. It's like a knife. You know, if I use a knife, right. a, a knife could butter people's bread and you could do so much good for it uh, with it. And, and I think that the, the free market is the same thing. As a matter of fact, the free market is the path to prosperity and to eradicate poverty, literally eradicate poverty. But you need good people using it. Right. And so my whole point is to turn and say, instead of trying to change that system, let me try to help in, in helping people see and be good. Yeah. And, and that's one of my motivations to get into education. Um, but also to defend the free market and to show that in the last 30 years, with the free market, we have reduced poverty to a fraction what it used to be. And when I mean fraction, I mean like this is the first time in the history of humanity that abject poverty goes like down below 10%, whereas usually it used to be 80% of humanity. And now it's down that low. Um, yeah. You have to give the free market credit for that. Yeah. I think too, like a lot of people struggle with uh, money and, and their finances. And I think it leads to issues surrounding like the free market. And they're like, I'm struggling and this is the system that I live in. So clearly 
the system that I live in is, you know, it has created this result that I live in now, or people see wealthy people and they see that person. And a lot of people, it seems now, especially in this country are angry at those people. And somehow like, no matter what you've done to get to that point, you did yeah. evil along the way to get there. And it's just this like rejection of capitalism and the free market and like actually like working hard and taking a chance. And it's, you know, I don't know if that's a product of the the climate that we're in now in terms of politics. I don't know if that's because of social media. I don't, I don't know what's driving that, but it seems like there's such a rejection of that, especially in this country when, you know, if you go back 20, 30 years in any country that wasn't in a free market system, those people will tell you like, you don't, you don't want socialism. It's not yeah. going to solve your problems. Yeah. No, I do think that there is a, uh, there is an issue with, uh, with blaming the system for the individual outcome. Um, it's also a bit of a, I think it's sort of uh, within our wealth, we get to turn around and say, this system is no good. Uh, while you're sitting there watching TV, having a washing machine, flying and right. driving everywhere, living in a house. You're saying it on your iPhone and you're drinking and then, your Starbucks. Yeah criticizing the the free market in Starbucks on an iPhone uh, through Twitter is the classic thing for this. That's a prosperity, uh, you know, that's a luxury problem to have. Um, I I believe that there is certainly issues with with the market. I told you I'm somewhat fundamentally suspicious of the free market, uh, of of the financial market. Uh, Because I think when your business consists of simply betting on things, um, the creative aspect of, of work isn't there anymore. And I think being creative is one of the core issues of work. And so I would encourage people to be careful with the financial market and the financial market should serve the actual economy. But that market is somewhere between four and eight times as large as the actual economy, which is a problem. And so, um, so yeah, we and we have a ways to go. As long as there's people who are willing to cheat or lie or or have bad intentions, we have a ways to go. Um, but I would not blame the system for that. Sure. Yeah. Hey, Andreas, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I'm glad we got to have this good conversation. Thank you. Let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. I'd love to. Congratulations on this very cool um, uh, talks cast that you you put together. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. I appreciate it. That is going to do it for our episode today with Andreas Widmer. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to listen to some of our other episodes, you can go to our website at www.totspodcast.com. We can also be found on every single music streaming service, That is out there, mainly through Spotify, so definitely give us a follow through that. If you are listening to this episode instead of watching it, what are you doing? Definitely go check us out on YouTube at Tots Podcast. We have spent a lot of time being able to bring these to you recorded, so definitely go check that out so you can see my mannerisms, all that good stuff. If you want to support the podcast monetarily, make it possible for us to do some really cool things, have some really cool guests on, you can do that through Patreon. It's patreon.com. And then we are going to be at Tots Podcast. So definitely check that out. If you want to check us out on social media, we have a bunch of those. We are always at Tots Cast. We post every single Friday at 6 p.m. I'll see you next week.